Hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Mark. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For the ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. She will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand, beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Holy Father, we give you thanks for your word. Your word, which indeed does stand forever. Your word that does not wither or fade. May your word strengthen us this morning. May your word instruct us, exhort us, and lead us to all righteousness, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Imagine, you know, for a second, waking up Christmas morning, one of the greatest mornings in the church, in the calendar, right? And you fill with anticipation for the day, a yummy brunch with family, gifts under the tree, snow falling outside, warm cup of cocoa, if that's, you're into that kind of thing, you know, in your hand, you know, remembering the incarnation of Christ, one of the most profound mysteries that there, that there, that existed, that God became flesh and, uh, you know, which Christmas along with Easter, two greatest holidays in the, in the church, church calendar year, full of good food, full of, full of parties and friends and, and the gospel and let's imagine on that particular day, all this amazing stuff is happening. And instead of celebrating and enjoying Christ and all his gifts to us and fellowship, all you can think about are politics. Not just politics, but how to destroy your political enemy. And you become so distracted that you're consumed by this that you, you can't enjoy the celebrations at all. Well, maybe I just accidentally described your you know, Christmas with family. Um, but this make-believe scenario um, is, I think, the closest example I could come up with anyways um, that we have in our current time to compare to kind of what's happening here in this text. Um, verse 1 tells us that it's Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which are you know, the high days of Jewish celebrations, celebrating the Passover, right, when God protected his people from death and delivered them from from the hands of, of Egypt, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread when, when they remember God feeding them in the, in the desert, uh, in the wilderness. 
Right? And people came from all over. Jews came from all over, gathered into the city, into Jerusalem for this day. You know, on a, on a normal day, the city had about 70, 70-ish thousand people inside of it. It's a little smaller than Yakima, to give you some perspective. But on this, in this week, the city swelled to over 300,000 people. Imagine Yakima more than tripling in size for an, for an event. This is, this is like what's happening here. And for the, the chief priests and the scribes, with the leaders of the, the Jewish people, this is their moment to shine. Well, it wasn't just the, the people that year that revolved around this moment, but, the, but the, the leaders did too. And here, instead of preparing for this coming feast and for feeding the people the good news of the, the glory that is God, his provision and protection for the people and remembering these great things, here instead of preparing for that, all they can think about is Jesus. In fact, all anyone can think about is Jesus in this moment. And for them, it's not, not just that they, all they can think about is Jesus, but all they can think about is finding a time to kill Jesus. Right, at a time when they're supposed to remind God's people about the, the great provision and protection of the Lord, about his preserving his people. At a time when they're supposed to be consumed by the goodness and love of God and feasting and rejoicing in this thing, in these things, they're consumed with hate for Jesus, consumed with finding an opportunity to kill him. Why? Because Jesus is a disruption to them. He's disrupting their power, their control. He's disrupting their way of life, and they do not like that. And all week, since he's come into the city, um, you know, uh, on, riding on a donkey, all week, since he's come into the city, he's spoken against them. He's overturned the tables. He's spoken against uh, their actions, against their life, and he's challenged their authority in ways that only God has a right to do. And what they don't like, even more than that, is that the people are beginning to listen to him. And they hate Jesus for it. And in here, as, as Jesus starts to march ever closer towards the cross, and these final moments of Jesus' life that we're going to discover over the next couple months when we explore this passage, we're going to find that in the end, the life of Jesus polarizes the nation. Right? Jesus is the great dividing line, he's the great disruptor. He can't be ignored. He can't be shut up, but he forces you to do something with him. You either love him or you hate him. There really isn't an in-between, and even 2,000 years later, 2,000 years after this moment, Jesus continues to disrupt our lives. He, he makes you do something with him. You can't ignore him. What do you do with Jesus is the question. What do you love? And as we consider these questions, I mean, there's, there's two characters presented for us in this passage. One moved by their love for Jesus, and one that's moved by their hatred of him. And as we're invited to end, to consider our lives, to consider what we will do with Jesus, we're given these characters as, as portraits to evaluate our own lives and to answer the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? Ultimately, what is the thing that you love? What do you treasure? And in these two characters, I think what, we're, what we find is that you either, is that you worship what you love. And so we're going to split this up in just the two parts. First is the heart with rightly ordered loves, and second is the heart with disordered loves. So first, we find the heart with rightly ordered loves worships Jesus. The heart with rightly ordered loves worships Jesus. And what's on display for us here is that the heart that has rightly ordered loves worships Jesus, and we see this play out in, in two, two different ways, that this love for Jesus is both excessive and it's appropriate. 
It's excessive and appropriate. First, it's an excessive love. Look at verse three with me. It says, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So I think, you know, for us reading this, it's easy to miss maybe just how costly this was for her. And, you know, from the other gospel accounts, we know that this was Mary, Mary, the sister of Martha, the house that Jesus and his disciples would often stay in. And, uh, and it, you know, in this thing that she poured out over him, wasn't just like Axe body spray that she was spraying on him, right? Um, but this was a, an, an ointment or an oil um, that was made from a plant that is found in India, which India is not super close to where they're at. So it's a very expensive, very elaborate thing that she had. And we find out here that, you know, she could have sold it for more than 300 denarii, which is about a year's salary was what this ointment was, was worth. Very expensive, uh, a year's worth of income. And it's not like this is something that she saved up for. They didn't have saving accounts. You're going to take 10% of your income every year and you, one day you can buy this sweet nard, you know, <laughs> that wasn't what was happening here. You know, likely anything that she made, she spent... You know, they didn't have savings accounts. So most people think that this was probably a, a family heirloom that was passed down from generation to generations. Somewhere along the line, they ended up with this really expensive thing and they passed it down from generation to, to generation. So not only did it have a high monetary value in that day, in our day, if something was worth a year's salary, that's expensive, um, but it has high sentimental value. It was her most valued possession. And think about the, even the things that we treasure the most as people, they, they're not, oftentimes they're not the most expensive things, are they? But they're sentimental things. They're things that remind you of your family and of your loves and, or of someone that you love. And, you know, to, and to, know, to know what those things are for you, you can kind of do the, the, the test if you were in a fire, what's the one thing that you're going to grab to save when you're running out the door? Assuming that your children and your spouse and everyone else is fine, you know, they're all fine. Okay, now what's the one thing that you would take um, what do you grab? Well, for Mary, this, is that, this, this would have been that one thing. This would have been her greatest treasure. And here in this kind of dramatic fashion, she breaks open the container and pours it over Jesus' head. So imagine, you know, the, the water when it kind of drips down your back. Imagine it just kind of just dripping down its back and kind of uncomfortable. But this is what she does. She pours it out over him. An extravagant gesture. And then what makes her act even more excessive and extravagant is that culturally, she probably wasn't even supposed to really be in the room with them. You know, it says it here that they're reclining at table. And typically in that day, this would have been men reclining around the table at the end of the day, eating together, sharing life together. And the only time you would find women in the room in this kind of scenario likely is in serving uh, food. And, uh, and so here, right, what does she do? She, she bursts into a room that she's not supposed to even be in. She, she bursts in and, and pours her most costly possession out over Jesus. You know, as I consider this, it kind of reminds me of, of King David dancing undignified before the Ark of the Covenant when he was coming into the, into the city, right? He, he's, he couldn't help himself because he's over, overcome with emotion, with the glory of God. And this is Mary. She's, she's undignified. She's overcome with the glory of Jesus, Worshiping Jesus in an excessive way. Why is she doing this? Because she loves Jesus. As one commentator says about this, love makes you do crazy things. And her love for Jesus made her do something crazy and burst into a room that she wasn't supposed to be in and pour out her most costly possession over him. And the only thing that actually can motivate our worship 
And the thing that does motivate and animate our worship of anything is our love. And this is an excessive act of love that says, I will do anything for you. This is a demonstration that her most precious possession is nothing next to Jesus. It's a sign of a deep and unrestrained extravagant love that withholds nothing. She sees Jesus of Nazareth and she says, you are my Messiah. You are that pearl of great price and I will do anything to obtain you. To her, Jesus is her everything, her only hope. And a heart of love holds nothing back in its worship. Which begs the question even for us, do we see Jesus like this? Do we behold the treasure that he is? You know, what's interesting about this moment is that the disciples, while they loved Jesus, they actually didn't get what was happening, did they? In verse four to five, it says this, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, right? It's pretty strong language used to describe their action. They were indignant. They were, they were angry, uh, and in their anger, they scolded her, which is really just a harsh word. You know, we, we often use that word to talk about the heat of something or the heat of, of water. You know, once I made the mistake, I was boiling water for, for tea. It was in a tea phase of my life. We all, it happens to all of us. And, uh, and the, the water was, you know, I, I walked away. I forgot about it. And then I remembered, oh, shoot, there's water boiling on my stove. And there was no water left in it. And so in my haste, I grabbed that. And I turned the faucet of water on and I shoved the, the tea kettle underneath the water. And I don't know if you guys are scientists, but you know, water and a hot pan make, it turns out it makes steam. And so my hand was just burned and it was pretty painful. And, uh, and you know, the, the steam scolded my hand. And uh, this, is, this is kind of an image of what they're doing to Mary. This woman who just poured out her most expensive thing and is showing her love and affection for Jesus, they scold her. Why? Well, he says here, because they could have given that money to the poor, which, you know, at first glance, seems like such a noble gesture. I mean, it seems like the greater good. You could have done this greater good with this thing. But they only think this because they don't understand what she has done. That although it's excessive, it's appropriate. It's more appropriate than actually giving to the poor. This is what we see here in verse six. We see this in Jesus' response. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. I love this response from Jesus. He defends her. And it just, there's something about his language that just feels kind of normal. It's like me talking to my own children. Stop it. Don't do that, right? Leave your, leave your siblings alone. Um, he, then he says, what, what she did for me was beautiful. It was the right thing. It was the beautiful thing. It was more beautiful than actually taking that and giving to the poor. And for those who have paid attention to Jesus at all, this seems like a strange thing for him to say. Because it seems like he's saying that the poor are not important. Um, even in our culture, cultural moment, I think many would say the greatest good you can do for anybody is to care for the poor and the marginalized among us. We just read that in Micah, right? And, and uh, there's nothing greater than, than caring for the poor. Uh, and yet here it seems like Jesus is saying, no, nah, but the poor will be okay. They're, they're always going to be with you. And I've heard people use that verse to, to, to excuse not caring for the poor. That's not what he's saying here. Because nobody loved the poor like Jesus did. No one cared for, the, for those in need more than Jesus. He loved them so much they actually identified with the poor. 
by becoming poor himself, right? He who was rich became poor, emptying himself to walk as a human. And here he is saying, though, that there is actually a greater concern, a greater love that we ought to have than caring for the poor, and it's a love and worship of Jesus, right? Jesus says, her love poured out is not excessive at all, but it's entirely appropriate. The expense was well worth it. It is a beautiful thing that she did. Your love fuels your worship, and Mary becomes a model for us for love of God. And on the heels of his crucifixion, which is just a few days from this moment, it's kind of weighs on every story that we're going to read from here to the crucifixion, as Jesus is likely feeling the weight of what's coming. He is the only one here that really knows what's coming. It's Mary and her love for Jesus that got the moment right. And whether she understood it or not, she was actually preparing Jesus for what was coming. And in a way, she was strengthening and readying him for what was to come. You know, in Jewish custom, before you bury the dead, you anoint them with oils. If you remember, Jesus actually never got this after this moment. Because when the, when the woman were going to the, to the tomb to anoint Jesus with oils, he, was, he wasn't there anymore. He was already risen. This is the only anointing with oils he got, and it signified, listen, the end is near. He's being prepared for what is to come. Jesus, the true Passover lamb, being prepared for the Passover. Right, like a lamb being led to the slaughter, he was being prepared for the end of his mission. Right, where some sought to kill him, others sought to worship him. While some saw him as a threat, Mary saw him as her Lord. And she has this unrestrained and extravagant love for Jesus that's poured out in her worship. And when your loves are rightly ordered, Jesus becomes the object of your worship. This is a powerful moment and compelling moment. And, you know, although 11 of the, of the disciples ended up getting the, the point eventually, you know, they themselves laying the, their lives down, almost all of them dying brutal deaths for the sake of the gospel, that, you know, they're always a little bit slow on the, on the uptake. But there was one who actually never did get it. For one of the disciples... Everything here was excessive and undeserving of Jesus. For one of the disciples, he saw Jesus, and instead of pouring himself out to worship him, he went out to conspire that Jesus might be murdered. And so as we just saw what rightly ordered love looks like, now we're going to see the, the, the opposite side and, and what disordered love looks like. And then we see this, that a heart with disordered loves hates Jesus. A heart with disordered loves hates Jesus. Jesus. We see this verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. This has got to be one of the most shocking verses in all of scripture. I'm going to read it again. Consider this. There's nothing that's hinting in the text that this is about to happen. We've all probably read it, you'll know Judas is the bad guy, but up until this moment, you don't know that. And read this, then Judas Iscariot, comma, who was one of the 12, right, he's an insider, he's one of the 12 disciples, one of the people that was chosen by Jesus, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. What a strange thing to happen. You know, if this was a movie, uh, this would have been the twist that you never saw coming. Right, Judas, think about his life for a second. He spent three years with Jesus. Right, he was there on the boat when Jesus calmed the storm, witnessing his authority over creation with just his words. Uh, 
Judas was there when Jesus was casting demons out of people, witnessing his authority over the spiritual realm. Judas was there in the room when Jesus found out about a 13-year-old girl who was dead in her bed, witnessing Jesus' authority over life and death as Jesus rose her to, to life. Judas was there for all of it. I mean, who among us in this room wouldn't have loved to have been there for those events? On your darkest days, when your faith is the hardest to, to have, I mean, you're like, man, if I could just see it, then it would be easier to believe. Well, Judas saw all of it. And all the things that were never written down, he was with Jesus. Judas, who spent time with Jesus in ways that we dream about, that man, one of the 12, betrayed Jesus. Let the soberness of this moment sink in. Verse 10 is one of the more sobering verses in all of Scripture. And against the backdrop of Mary's action of love, it stands out all the more. That's one of the reasons why Mark is putting this story right together. He's showing us these, these two different things. They're meant to be read side by side. A heart that loves God and a heart of disordered loves that hates Jesus. Which begs the question, how could this happen? How does this happen that someone who walks with Jesus, who witnessed all that he witnessed, could possibly turn his back on Jesus like this? We wonder that thing even in our own churches. There's apostasy, which is what this is, when someone's following and then they fall away. This isn't the only time that this has happened, right? This happens throughout the history in, in all churches where people walk away from Jesus. How does that happen, especially when one of the, it's one of the 12 who walked with Jesus? In the end, it's because love makes us do crazy things. And we see what he actually loves here in verse 11. He says this, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And what's that thing that causes him to turn his back on Jesus? Verse 11 tells us it's money. It's age old evil, money. Money which Jesus calls the roots of all kinds of evil. Money which Jesus says that you can't serve God and money. And because he loved money, because he served money, because he worshiped wealth, his worship of an idol, his disordered loves, led him to hate Jesus, because you can't serve both. You can't love both. And since the, the fall that happened in the garden, our loves have struggled with disorder. Right? In the, in the fall, we didn't cease being loving creatures. We didn't, we didn't cease being worshiping creatures. It's just that our loves were disordered. And now there's competitors for our loves. And here we find that the end of that in Judas. Judas's love is, uh, disordered love is on full display in his love of money. And when you think about money and the love of money, um, it's typically not just gaining more of it that, that's the idol, but it's what having lots of money can do for you. Because not only did he, he gain money, but here he got the praise of the chief priests and scribes. It says that they were glad. And it feels good to make the powerful people in the world happy to have them on your team. And, and this is what he did. He, he, he was seen by these men. He made them glad. Money and power, these are seductive things for us. More than just love of money, it was a love of power and fame that came with it. So why on earth would this man, this who followed Jesus for three years, if he never loved him, why would a Judas have put up with Jesus' stuff, which for three years if he never loved him. 
Well, because Judas ended up loving what he thought Jesus could do for him. Right? He thought Jesus and all his power and all his authority, he thought he was going to take the throne and dispel the Roman overlords and that he would be friends with the most powerful ruler ruling beside him. So really, he thought Jesus was going to be the, the gateway to obtain his, his idol worship. And something happened in this room. Something happened with, with Mary anointing Jesus where Judas finally realized that Jesus was not going to give him what he wanted. He finally realized that Jesus wasn't going to bring him the wealth, the fame, the power that he thought he was. And so he finally had enough. And he left the room and he found the chief priests and scribes to conspire to murder Jesus. Love makes you do crazy things. Your love leads you to your worship. And disordered love will lead you to hate and even kill Jesus, the Son of God. The question turns to us then, what, what do you expect Jesus to do for you? What, do you? what do you want from Jesus? Why are you following him? If your expectations are that following Jesus will somehow make your life easier, will make you, you wealthy, uh, will make you powerful, then you're gonna struggle following Jesus. And eventually, you will walk away when he doesn't give you what you want when you want it. I mean, this is often why it's the, the weak, right? The poor, the downtrodden among us that love Jesus the, the most because they have nothing of their own, right? They, they need his love. They need his care. This is why the wealthy and powerful often hated Jesus because they had everything on their own. And it's hard to give up everything when it provides so much for you. And if you are hanging on to your worldly possessions with a closed fist, you aren't going to look at Jesus and see him as good when he demands everything from you. You're going to eventually end up hating Jesus like Judas did. Because nothing is more offensive than Jesus confronting your idols. And as we reflect on these two characters, we can't help but notice, right, if, if one of the 12 can walk away, then I could too. If, if one of the 12 that has followed Jesus for three years has literally broken bread with him, can walk away, then what's keeping us from walking away? Because we all struggle with disordered loves. We all have divided hearts. We all have expectations of Jesus that are not good, right? We think we know what Jesus needs to do in this world, how he should behave and act. And oftentimes we think we know how God should act in. We know better than God. And I imagine no one here says, yeah, I want to be like Judas. But everyone here struggles with their loves. We want to love Jesus. Remember, we want to want to love Jesus, but we don't know how. How do we do this? How do we change our loves? How do we change our hearts? The truth is, on our own, we can't. Right? Only Jesus can do this. Right? It isn't the strength of our love for him that changes us, but it's the strength of his love for you that changes you. In the end, it isn't about the strength of our love for God, and this is a good thing, because our strength and our love for God ebbs and flows, but it's about the strength of his love for you, which is steadfast. It's a hesed love, a steadfast, never-ending love. Right, God who first loved you, even when you were his enemy, he loved you. And nowhere is the strength of love, is the beauty of his love for you shown more 
than when he himself was poured out on the cross. Because it's on the cross where God's unrestrained, extravagant, excessive love for you made him do something crazy. Where God took his own most precious possession. Where Jesus himself ended up going into a room that he didn't belong on the cross where, where murderers were hung. And poured, his body was broken, his blood was poured out. Why? Why do this for people who struggle to love him back? He did it because he's in love with you, with his people. And nothing can make him stop loving you. Because love makes you do crazy things and the love of God led him to sacrifice his only begotten son that he might capture your love. His love for you is so fierce that even in the midst of your idol worship, even in the midst of you chasing false gods, his blood covers you because his love never hesitates. The strength, the vigor of of the love of God for us as people is hard to imagine because we don't experience that in day-to-day life. Most of our love is somewhat transactional. It's like, I love you until this moment, and then, that's not how God treats his children. If you are a child of God, his love for you is complete. It is sure and never fading. It doesn't matter what you're doing in the moment. You could be actually, uh, this is recorded. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm gonna, you could actually murder somebody in that moment. If you are God's child, his love for you does not change at all. And the truth is, every time you hate somebody, you are murdering somebody. That is how strong his love is for us. And it's only when you behold that, when that love of God for you begins to to sink in, that it's only when you're captured by the love that God has for you, that your own love for him can be reordered, retrained, reoriented. So we can become like Mary. Mary, who's held up as an example. Mary, who says, says listen, this is going to be told around the world, everywhere the gospel goes out, you're going to know Mary's name. And here we are, talking about Mary. It is the unrestrained, extravagant, excessive love of God for us that compels us to respond with an unrestrained and extravagant love for him. And then we can let go of any possession that we have and use anything that we have to beautify the bride of Christ. We can give freely because if God, the God who made the heavens and the earth loves you, then that's the only thing you ever need. This is the kind of thing, this is the kind of people we become, a generous people who are abundant in giving, abundant in mercy, who love like God loved us. And hold even our most treasured possessions with open hands because we know that the the only thing that has any value in our life is the Christ who loves us. May we be a people who can behold the beauty of Christ. May our hearts be stirred with affection towards him. May we be so captivated by this extravagant love of Jesus that we withhold no treasure from him and his people. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, your love for us is something we will never fully understand because it is something we've never felt for another person. Yet your love for us is sure. May we be captivated and captured by your great love for us. May your love for us transform us and make us like you. Do this work in us by the power of your spirit, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.